You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Welcome to the show. This is Aaron Fishman. In a moment, I'll be joined by Jared Weiss for an Eastern Conference preview discussion. Growing up, Boris Diaw was one of Jared's favorite players. They had similar physical limitations, and both were crafty passers, so he modeled his game after the French forward. A few years ago, when audio company Sennheiser flew Jared to their headquarters in Germany to consult for them, he jumped at the chance to see a little more of Europe. At the time, the aforementioned Diaw was playing his pro basketball swan song season in Paris with the Levallois Metropolitans, and Jared, then a bank regulator who covered the NBA at night, was well aware. This would be the perfect opportunity to finally interview one of the players he looked up to as a kid. First, Jared unfortunately showed up at the wrong arena. By the time he arrived at the correct place, the second half was underway. He waited for an hour after the game, but still, there was no sign of the Frenchman. Unfazed, Jared went on to begin a career in full-time sports journalism covering the NBA. Given his role as Celtics staff writer for The Athletic, we'll spend an outsized portion of our time on Boston, while also touching upon the other top Eastern teams and some more general storylines around the conference. We recorded on Tuesday afternoon, hours before the Nets walloped the Warriors in the season opener. For more of Jared's work, you can find him frequently appearing on the Athletics NBA Daily Ding podcast. He also has more Grant and Taco Show content in the works, so stay tuned for that. Without further ado, let's bring in Jared who's interestingly enough not the first Jared W. to appear on the NBA beat. Thanks for joining me, Jared. As you get ready to watch the season tip off as we record on Tuesday afternoon, hope you had a terrific Hanukkah and are doing well. Everything's good over there in Boston, all things considered? Yeah, I mean, it's freezing cold. There's piles of snow everywhere, but otherwise, you know, we're fine. Sounds great. (laughs) The usual. Yeah, I think it probably a natural place to start this Eastern Conference preview discussion is at the top. To me, the Brooklyn Nets and the Milwaukee Bucks are the favorites to make it out of the East. I'll put Brooklyn at 1A and Milwaukee just a little bit behind. Why do you think I'm right or wrong about that? Oh, wow. I thought we were going to start with the Wizards, but okay. So, <laughs> you know, Br- Brooklyn has the most upside, clearly. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rank anyone ahead of Milwaukee, considering that I think Milwaukee did a lot to improve on the weaknesses that the Heat exposed so well in the playoffs. You know, their defense has the kind of switchable versatility that it needs now that Drew Holiday is out there instead of Eric Budsoe. Um Dante DiVincenzo will probably take another good step forward. They just had that learning experience of how much they need to adjust their defensive scheme and have at least some variety when they get to the postseason. So I do think they're going to learn from their mistakes and be a lot more potent this year. So I would have them as the favorite, but I, w- I would probably put Brooklyn as a one B, you know, I wouldn't put it as a two. It's not, they're on the same tier, I think. 
And maybe I'm a little biased because I just saw Brooklyn up close last week and oh my God, were they, <laughs> were they scary? I mean, they, I, I think it was Ryan Rucco. I'll give I think I'll give him credit for putting it, them as they're basically like the death star. And, you know, the death star very famously had a major vulnerability that allowed you to blow it up. And so if somebody can nestle right in there between Kyrie and KD and make the chemistry fall apart, this team can really, really fall apart, but they are, they've got a giant freaking laser beam basically when it comes to KD and Kyrie and KD who frankly is playing at like 60 to 70% capacity at this point. He still looks like a dominant and borderline MVP caliber player right now. I mean, he looks like he's going to be certainly be an all-star at least this year. And considering how deep that team is, Kevin Durant at pretty much an all-star level, if he stays healthy and Kyrie is playing at an all-star level, staying healthy, yeah, that is probably enough for them to be the equivalent of a 58-60 win team and give the Bucks a run for their money. But I'm just, I'm just not going to put them ahead of Milwaukee quite yet. Mm-hmm. That's fair. And you alluded to their phenomenal depth at the end of your response there. I think it's pretty crazy if you look at it. There's six through ten guys, in my opinion, could comprise a starting lineup arguably capable of making the playoffs in the East. It's like Spencer Dinwiddie or Karis LeVert, whoever doesn't start, I would start LeVert. But um, Landry Shamit, Torian Prince, Jeff Green, Jared Allen. They have like three six-man-of-the-year candidates on their bench, which which might actually hurt them from being able to win the award just because they have too much depth. Uh, yeah, kind of that's what happened to George Hill last year, who I thought probably had a, probably deserved it more than even Trez did. But so, yeah, they it looks like Levert's going to be coming off the bench at this point. It seems like it makes more sense for Dinwiddie too, but go figure. Honestly, I, I don't think Spencer Dinwiddie is going to want to stick around long-term there just because he showed last year he's a starting caliber player. And maybe he's able to start long term there, but I feel like they're they're gonna if they don't trade for Harden, they're probably gonna find another All Star caliber player they could trade for, like Bradley Beal, obviously. So I wouldn't be surprised if Dinwiddie gets moved at some point or package with Levert to go for a big star. I feel like that that move is kind of destined to happen. But for now, they're gonna thrive off their depth. And yeah, I, I mean Landry Shamit, I think was a great addition. I really. I, I'm a real big believer in Shamit. Uh, I, I think the guy that he showed that he was, especially in the playoffs against the Warriors, his rookie year, I think that's the kind of player that he's going to grow into, not the guy that struggled to find a role in what was a pretty tumultuous season for Doc Rivers last year managing that rotation. So I really, I think they're going to get the most out of him. And so it's at the point where like Torian Prince might even be on the outside looking in on that rotation because of how solid uh, Timothy Luabo Cabarro has been. He's looking like a pretty solid three and D option, or at least like a D and transition option for them. So they, they have a lot of different types of players to choose from. They match up really well against pretty much any team that come, that they come across, at least offensively, defensively, obviously their, their wing defensive depth is their major, major uh, vulnerability. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they ended up making some moves to try to improve that. Uh, I mean, Bruce Brown is a, is a great addition from that standpoint, but he is like pretty much a zero on offense. Regarding the depth, and this feels like a first world problem and kind of ridiculous to ask, but could it be an issue that there are so many quality players that will have to sacrifice minutes that they feel that they deserve people like Torian Prince, maybe Landry Shamit, Jared Allen, some of those guys? You know, Shamit, I think, is looking for stability and just like having a home. So 
I think he'd be okay with not playing 25 minutes a night if he just like knows that he could at least have a long-term future there. Uh, I mean, it, it is funny how he's played for like three different major market teams. He's lived in like three of the biggest cities in the country over the past uh, couple of years of his career. It's been a weird career for him. I think Prince is probably the guy that's going to end up being on the outside looking in just because the Levert clearly is ahead of him in the depth chart as for, uh, for wings and KD's a starter. Joe Harris obviously has to be a starter. So he's the one that seems to be probably sacrificing the most in the group. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's an issue for him. Spencer Dinwiddie has an issue because the ball's out of his hands a lot. But, you know, Kyrie the other day also said that he's looking forward to playing off ball more. And he thinks that that's going to be beneficial for him at this point of his career. So maybe they'll be able to keep Spencer happy by having him play a lot more point guard and have Kyrie be a shooting guard. Yeah. And just to answer my own question, I think that if you're one of those guys and you have a, a shot at a title, you sacrifice and you don't complain at least for that one title shot. And then maybe if you win one and you feel like your talent has outgrown the situation there, then you think about other situations potentially. But I think that if you're that elite of a team, that that's a a good problem to have. And I don't think that would disrupt anything really. I think what you said at the beginning about if someone is able to get in between Kyrie and KD and kind of, form a wedge there or something because we've seen that Kyrie Irving has had a lot of issues at his previous stops in recent years that um maybe that could be their downfall but yeah they're looking awfully strong to me right now yeah I wouldn't expect that I mean Kyrie this is the first time Kyrie got to choose his situation he partnered up with someone who he says is his, his best friend so you know I I think I think they're going to form like Voltron for the most part and you know going yeah. back to what you're saying about the competing part uh, you know, if you're like Landry Shamit, who you know wants to prove that he's worth a big contract when he hits free agency after next season, being the eighth man on a team that makes the finals is a lot more valuable than being the sixth man on a team that loses in the first round. So, I mean, look at Tyler Hero has talked about like he's the biggest superstar in the making now just because of he had some good offensive uh, games in the uh, finals. So, you know, it's like being able to thrive in the conference finals and the finals it elevates your profile so much that you're going to be making a lot of money that way. Yeah. So with regard to the Milwaukee Bucks, they've been the best team in the NBA over the last two seasons, winning nearly 75% of their games. Giannis has won two straight MVPs last year. He became the third player in NBA history other than Hakeem Olajuwon and Michael Jordan to win MVP and Defensive Player of the Year award. I don't know why I'm saying all this. We know how good he is. That hasn't been the issue. It's just been getting over the hump in the playoffs. You argued earlier that they've addressed some of those issues that came to the fore in that series lost to Miami last postseason. To what extent do you think his long-term deal affects expectations for them this year, if at all? And also, the Bogdan Bogdanovich mishap and it was just announced that they lost the second round pick. Is that just more of kind of a, a disappointing thing, given how much better they could have improved their roster, but not really that big of an issue as far as current team makeup in your mind? Well, you know, the Bogdanovich move would have been a huge short term bolstering, but Divincento is really good. You know, he could, I think he's a very promising rotation player. He's a different. He's going to be a different player than Bogdanovich, but 
considering they have Drew Holiday now and Giannis and Chris Middleton can both create and score, maybe having someone who is more of an off-ball, high-energy 3 and D guy might be more valuable than having someone and Bogdanovich, who's more of an on-ball playmaking type, who at least can do some stuff on-ball pretty well. Uh, then obviously, DiVincenzo has much higher defensive potential, more impactful on the glass, and is obviously a lot younger. So it, it could prove that a couple years from now, DiVincenzo is good enough that it makes up for losing out on Bogdanovich. So it might not be the end of the world for them. Um, and it probably will lower their tax bill, which will be helpful for them trying to keep some of these guys that hit free agency in the you know over the next year or two. But I think as far as the pressure is concerned, you've locked in Giannis, you've locked in Middleton. I assume they're going to lock in Holiday. Apologies if they already didn't. I missed it. I'm pretty sure they didn't, though. Um, did, I haven't seen that. Ever. Yeah, so they haven't. Okay. So, you know, I think I'm pretty sure they're going to be able to retain Holiday unless something goes terribly wrong. So their core is pretty much going to be intact for long term. I think their bigger question is if Brooke Lopez's shooting doesn't really come back as great of a defender as he is now, he, you know, if, if he's not able to stretch the floor for you, then do you have to try to trade him? And how tradable is he at this point of his career? Even if he is still an all NBA caliber defender, he is also what, like 32 now. So, and he's getting paid a pretty good amount. So um, it's, you know, th- that could be the next question that they have to answer, but I really mm-hmm. don't think they actually suffered that much in the Bogdanovich thing. One team that's getting a lot of buzz, the Miami heat, after their spectacular run to the finals in the Orlando bubble, reports came out earlier today that they're no longer discussing a Harden trade. Hilarious. Yeah, they have Bam Adebayo, who nearly won most improved player last year. And I could go on and on, but do you think that what we saw in the bubble in the playoffs was more indicative of their status as a member of the Eastern Conference elite, or can it be better explained by the weirdness of the bubble? So I, I don't think that they're going to be a you know fifty-five win juggernaut this year, but I do think that they're going to be just as competitive in the playoffs. The main reason is, I mean, this is kind of like how we talk about the Spurs every year, how they're not going to be good, and they always end up being good no matter what. But like, I just don't see Jimmy Butler playing. 45 minutes a night with a 35% usage rate every single night for 72 games. Like you just can't play at that level. And I've heard a lot mm-hmm. of people push back and that being like, Jimmy Butler plays hard. But like Jimmy Butler was not playing that way during the regular season. He was playing at a much more calm, reasonable level. And then in the playoffs, he flipped the switch. So I do think he's going to you know, start performing like a top 10 player in the NBA or even top five player like he was last year uh, when we get to the playoffs. And, Bam Adebayo will be better. He'll be hopefully be healthy uh, for the entirety of the run. But Bam Adebayo, as great as he was last year, there's still a lot of improvement for him to make. I mean, he still isn't even a threat to shoot outside of 10 feet. Like, there's so much more room for improvement for him. Um, and then, like, Tyler Hero is this huge phenomenon, but the guy's not even that good yet. Like, wait till he actually gets good. There's just so much more room for improvement for these guys. I don't know if Dragic can quite replicate what he did in the playoffs before he got hurt last year but there's clearly enough there that they can continue to be a major impact team and i know a lot of people have talked about how losing jay crowder shooting is going to really hurt them i mean i've i've been around jay crowder a lot and jay crowder he does a lot of good for you but he also he misses a ton of shots he blows a lot of rotations on defense it's like he's great for setting the tone and 
being able to like always be confident to make the play, but like he also has a lot of blunders out there too. And I don't think he's going to hurt them or I guess replacing him with Maharkless. I don't think he's going to hurt them nearly as much as a, a lot of people have uh, made it out to be. So I still see them as, I think they're probably the third best team in the East right now. And, you know, once we get to the playoffs, that team, they, they always flip that switch. They've got probably the best coach in the NBA right now. And they're always going to be uh, dangerous. There's no question about it. Yeah. Transitioning to the team you cover most closely, the Celtics, Danny Ainge has been a lightning rod on the internet at basically everywhere. Um, and he got a lot of flack for seemingly not getting anything in return for Gordon Hayward, but he did get that historically high $28.5 million trade exception. How likely do you think it is that he'll use that at some point in the near future? And how important or unimportant is that asset? Oh, it's everything hangs on that asset and they're going to use it. It'll, it's, it's probably like a 70, 30 chance that they use it to a certain degree this year during this league year. And then next off season, next off season. One thing that's tricky for them is that so many potential free agents just went off the board over the last 24 hours due to all the rookie deal extensions. And so there's really high demand on the free agency market next year where there's tons of teams of cap space, but there's not a lot of supply for top level free agents unless Kawhi decides to leave the Clippers, which I can't imagine happening. So the Celtics are less likely to have that TPE as an advantage trying to work the trade market or the sign and trade market because there's going to be so many teams that have, you know, that have at least $20.5 million in cap space that are going to be able to get a free agent that would try to work out a trade with another team to just trade for that big time player into cap space. So I, I think that they're probably best off trying to use it now during the season. Um, I, Aaron Gordon has been my top target for them. I think he just, he fits everything that they're missing at, uh, at the wing position at this point. And they also can cover up for his shortcomings and really play to his strengths. And uh, Orlando, they just paid, 20 million a year to Jonathan Isaac and 14 million a year or so to Mark Hill Fultz. So, I mean, Aaron Gordon could still fit into their plans, but it definitely seems like they're probably going to be moving on from, I mean, at least Evan Fournier or Aaron Gordon, but honestly, probably, probably both of those guys and Gordon, there's not a lot of places he could go where I think it would really make sense for his career, but Boston is definitely one of them. So I'd expect them to make a run at him if they, agree with me and think that he'll be a great fit. But I thought that Miles Turner would be a great fit, and they clearly didn't think that way, and that's why Ainge made the move that he did. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, two young stars in this league. Tatum, you could argue, is already a superstar. Um, if he's not, there's a good chance he'll make that leap into superstardom this season. Uh, what are the specific parts of those two players games that you expect to see them improve this year it seems like they're both getting better each and every year and like they're not even close to their ceilings yet yeah so uh i mean tatum I'd say he's a star clearly um if you're all nba third team like he was you're you're a star and you're pushing towards superstar i mean if you make second team all nba that means you're essentially means you're a top 10 player in the nba basically that's you know obviously a superstar status so you know he's He's, he's definitely crossing that threshold. And the way that he played over the second half of last season 
was probably at that level. I mean, there's still a lot of work for him to do, but he's putting up you know, 25 points, eight rebounds, three and a half, four assists. You know, he's shooting, I think in the, the last like 30 games of the regular season last year, he shot 45% from three on almost eight attempts a game. I mean, like that's, uh, that's, yeah, that that's, I think was probably just about the best in the NBA. Um, so yeah, he's good. He's pretty good. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, but we, we also saw in the playoffs that, he had like that infamous game where he had zero points in the first half. And then he had what 28 points in the second half. It's like he was very erratic when the pressure was on. Cause he has never seen anything like that before. The defenses were incredible. He was getting guarded by OJ Ananobi and Jimmy Butler, arguably the two best wing defenders in the NBA besides Kawhi. I mean, you know, those are two of the best in the game. So I think the big thing for him this year is now that he's the big star, everybody knows it. The amount of attention he's going to get, the matchups he's going to get, the coverages that he's going to get. He's going to be getting a lot of traps, a lot of blitzes and double teams. He's got to be able to handle it. Um, he's got to be able to handle that defenders that they know that the spotlight's on them when they're covering him and they're going to be showing up at their A game and they're going to be playing way harder on him than they were playing last year. And he's got to be ready for that. And so I wouldn't be surprised if he even takes a bit of a dip early on and it takes him a while to get used to it. But I think at the end of the day, you're going to see that his balance and patience getting into the lane is going to improve again, and that's going to help him take a pretty nice leap. Uh, and then again, his composure handling double teams. You know, it wasn't until late last season that he learned what do I do with the ball when I'm running a pick and roll and they jump over the pick and they blitz me? How do I not turn the ball over? How do I not turn my back to the court so that I can still be able to pass out of it or attack out of it? All those scenarios, I think he's going to be much better at handling this year. And he's going to continue to get better at it as time goes on. So I think that's where you're going to see the real improvement. And then on defense, I think his ability to rotate and protect the rim, something that he flashed last year that shows that he can be a good power forward because he's got the athleticism and the reach that he can come rotate over and get above the rim and stop guys. Unless they're like a huge, powerful dunker, he's usually going to be able to be a pretty good rim protector. So him making another improvement there, that allows him to be the power forward a lot of the time. Um, you know, maybe even allow them to play some micro ball lineups and have him be the center basically and have Jalen Brown handle whoever the power guy is for the other team. So I think we're going to see some of that kind of stuff. And then quickly on Jalen Brown, I mean, we saw Jalen Brown, his one-on-one defense, I think really started to get up there towards some of the best in the league with the, the versatility he has to cover guards, wings, and power forwards, bigs. I mean, he really can just do it all. He's turning into a four position defender, maybe even five position defender in certain situations, as we saw in the playoffs. And his defense is, is getting pretty great. I know Tatum's getting most of the attention, but Jalen has to do a lot of the hard stuff. You know, Tatum gets to roam and break off to pick off plays and jump passing lanes. And that's the stuff that gets a lot of attention. But Jalen's the one that has to guard the elite ball handlers for the other team and stuff like that all the time. And that's kind of the dirty work that doesn't get noticed. And when you make one mistake, it looks like it's worse. But then there's also 35 possessions where he's playing great defense every single time. So I think he deserves credit, especially for what he did, really humiliating Pascal Siakam in the second round. Like that was one of the most surprising defensive performances that I've seen in a long time. That was incredible. So I think for him, it's really building off that and really proving that he is an actually an elite lockdown defender this year and someone who doesn't make as many mistakes in help defense. And then on offense, he's still struggling to create his own shot and score. 
out of the pick and roll out of isolation. I think he's going to get there this year and he's going to be a better playmaker. They're seeing some flashes of it, but then like also I think against the Nets in that preseason game, he was shot like one for 12 and that was really bad. So, you know, yeah. like you can't, you can't do that. He's got to, he's got to shoot 45%, 46% from field. He's got to shoot 39, 40% from three. If he's going to be an all-star yeah. and you know, he's capable of it for sure. He definitely is. In case listeners are interested, you've been doing great work this entire offseason at The Athletic. One particular article I really enjoyed was on officiating changes and how they, in your words, target Tatum more than just about any other player in the league. So I think that'll be really interesting to see how he adjusts. And I'm pretty confident, given how skilled he is, that he'll be able to adjust. It just may take a little bit of time. But I I did enjoy that article. My pleasure. And just um, moving on as we're kind of getting a little short on time, I just want to condense a couple questions. Which addition do you think will be more important for the Celtics, Jeff Teague or the addition of Tristan Thompson? I think in the short term, Jeff Teague obviously will be the more vital new addition Mm -hmm. right now because He's replacing Kemba Walker to a degree. He's going to be the, the the second point guard for this team. He's going to be getting a lot of minutes. And mm-hmm. this team is not only are they missing Kemba, but they're missing Hayward, who was their basically their second point guard, or I guess third point guard, depending on how you value smart. Um, and so they, they really, really need another playmaker out there. And Teague has looked pretty good so far. He's been hitting his deep shots. So they're going to be really counting on him. Um, I think that initially that's going to be super valuable, but then once we get later in the year, I think that's where Thompson, you know, once we get to the playoffs, that's where he's really going to show his value. Um, Because like we saw it in the postseason last year, that there were some matchups where as good as Daniel Tice was throughout the regular season and as, as important as his defensive versatility and consistency is, they really needed somebody that had the power and the athleticism and the reach to get up there and be able to play above the rim and handle the superior athletes. And, I mean, Thompson isn't really a high flyer um, and doesn't quite get above the rim like he did earlier in his career, and he's never really been that kind of guy, but he does kind of handle those kind of situations pretty well. So I think when we get to the playoffs, Thompson's probably going to be playing a bigger role than Teague is. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more show. This is Abu Ibanez Baldor, author of Dynasty, The Rise and Fall of the Greatest Teams in NBA History, and you're listening to On the NBA Beat. We'll be right back with Jared Weiss, but first, another edition of Sexy Stats. Brett Brown lost his coaching job four months ago. The news came one day after the Celtics unceremoniously swept his 76ers from the playoffs, and in the opening round, no less. Brown's seven-year tenure was certainly eventful. In his first season, the Sixers finished 15 games worse than the previous year, and this was all by design. The franchise was tanking. Within a few years, trust the process became its well-known motto, and Brett Brown did just that. There were some difficult-to-watch seasons, most painful being Brown's first three years in which his team won a grand total of 47 games. Let's not gloss over this. That's a three-year stretch of winning less than one of every five games. Yet Brown put on a brave face and kept working on player development. In 2015-16, Philly lost 72 games, 
following one loss shy of tying an NBA record. The following season, Brown's bunch improved its record by 18 games, but still fell well short of the playoffs. It was the 17-18 season when the 76ers finally vaulted into the playoffs, thanks to their 26-win leap. While there, they even won a series. The following postseason, Philly hearts were broken after then-Raptor Kawhi Leonard's Game 7 buzzer beater bounced on the rim four times before falling through the net. That was the closest they'd come, under Brown at least, to playing in an Eastern Conference Final. In Brown's last three seasons as coach, the Sixers won nearly 62% of their regular season contests, but their failure to live up to those lofty expectations ultimately doomed Brown. With patience at a premium, Doc Rivers takes over the reins for the 2021 campaign, with Elton Brand staying on as GM, but Daryl Morey joining him in the front office. We have to devote some time to the 76ers, and they have a new head coach, by the way, in Doc Rivers and president of basketball operations in Daryl Morey. But to what extent do you think that this is the last chance for Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid to prove that they can be a duo on a championship contending team? I would assume it's the last shot because, you know, for a new coach and GM, you would imagine that they would want to give it two years. But, I mean, they've been there for a while. And it's tough because it's what's unfair about it is that Tatum and Brown are not under that same kind of pressure that these guys are under, even though they've been together for, I think, pretty much the same period of time. I mean, Jalen and, yeah. uh, and Simmons were in the same draft. And then... um Simmons was out his first year. So the first year that Simmons and, uh, and Embiid were together was, I think, Tatum's rookie year. And Brown was stepping into a bigger role, though he was kind of at the same level as Tatum was that year. And those guys weren't nearly as Im- impressive as Embiid and Simmons were right out the gate, but they're catching up to them. Simmons's playmaking is pretty unbelievable. So if you put him in a system that's completely built around him, you could definitely get more out of him than you're going to get out of Jalen Brown. But at the end of the day, it's like, pretty much proven at this point that two-way wings that can shoot from deep those are the guys that those are the teams that win in the the championship in the nba and uh they don't have that in philly and it would be it would be especially in the modern era where bigs no longer dominate the game offensively like it would be a complete anomaly for simmons and Embiid to pull this off and while they are still young i mean Embiid is now getting into his prime and while simmons has a ways to go until he gets to his prime He's also shown pretty much no progress at developing just a modicum of a mid-range game because everybody gets it wrong talking about – people that talk about him trying to be a three-point shooter are people that don't understand analytics and they just – all they know about is analytics and that analytics likes threes. And it's like analytics likes you taking a shot that opens up the defense so that there's more space for you to drive and get layups because analytics recognizes that layups are the most valuable shots in the game. So mm-hmm. that's the whole point is that they have two guys that aren't spacing the floor. One guy who critically collapses the floor to the point that Brett Brown was using him as a power forward who was hiding in the dunker spot, for God's sakes. Like they had to hide Ben Simmons on offense to try to find ways to keep him out there. And so Simmons has to have some sort of overhaul where he just like, I mean, probably realizes he's shooting with the wrong hand and is just able to shoot well enough from 12 or 15 feet that he can just get the guys from packing the lane 
where they can just sit back where Joel Embiid is and they can both double team and trap Ben Simmons out of the lane at the same time. It, like until they're able to do that, and maybe Doc Rivers has figured out some sort of scheme that like that pulls that off, um, and maybe hopefully having the shooters that they have there now with Danny Green and Seth Curry, uh, not having Horford out there, which Horford when he was shooting forty percent from three would have been a great fit, but Horford just doesn't shoot that well from deep anymore, so that's why it failed. So hopefully now having these really good shooting lineups surrounding them gives them enough space that it works, but. I'm still a little bit skeptical that that's going to, it's going to be enough for them to win the championship. I do think it'll be enough for Mm -hmm. them to look really good this year. And I actually, I think I picked Joel Embiid as my pick to win defense player of the year. So I'm definitely excited for the possibility of this really working during the regular season, but I just don't, I don't see them unless maybe if Embiid is hitting the three ball really well, then they win. But I don't see it happening. If both his shot is still in the, 20% 20% range and Simmons is completely unable to shoot outside of the paint. For what it's worth, Simmons is only 24 and he has four more years under contract after this season. So I think Embiid is much more likely to be the one dealt if that has to happen. Um, the Atlanta Hawks may be the most intriguing team to me on the heels of their splashy offseason. They added shooters Bogdan Bogdanovich and Danilo Gallinari, veteran uh, point guard Rajon Rondo too and of course they have that young core of Trey Young and John Collins most notably but a lot of other young talent in Atlanta what do you think they have to do on the defensive end to show market improvement and actually get back into the playoffs it's a good question I mean I'm a little dubious on Clint Capella uh I mean, they got Onyeko Kungwu, who I love. So I think that I wouldn't be surprised if they actually ended up trading Capella and putting Okungwu in as their starter. But that might happen next year once they just really you know, once they know what they've got with Okungwu and know what they've got with mm-hmm. Capella. Um, but if they're starting John Collins and they're starting Danilo Gallinari, which it looks like it looks like both of their signings uh, are coming off the bench at this point, although it's not really clear. Um, you know, but if they're starting John Collins and they're starting one of the wings that they signed this offseason, then their defense is like in critical condition because obviously Trey is a turnstile. And then who do you who do you put at the two? Like is Kevin Herter gonna get it done? Can you is Cam Reddish ready to be the one defensive you know, lockdown guy on the team? I don't think he's at that point yet. So they're in this weird situation where there's just there's not really a correct answer for their starting lineup. Their starting lineup's always going to have some sort of defensive compromise, pretty much, um, or they just like don't start their uh, their huge signings from the offseason. And I think, I mean, it seems like they knew that Gallinari was going to be coming off the bench, and he knew that. But it seems like Bogdanovich was told he was going to come in to be a starter. So it's going to be really tricky for them to be able to be a good enough defense. I don't think it's going to happen unless Capella's like defensive recognition. And the way that he engages on ball has changed. I just think that he's not going to be that good of a pick and roll defender. And he has to be a great pick and roll defender because Trey is just guys are going to be flying downhill when they're coming over screens. Trey's just not going to be able to put much pressure on them from behind. Um, And so it's, it's just going to be a real free for all going in and out on that, on that defense. But they have so much offensive talent that, Maybe they're, you know, they have a positive net rating, even though they're giving up 120 a night. It's very possible. They could be like yeah. a better version of what uh, Washington was last year. I understand you have a lot going on, and I'll let you go. I just 
quickly wanted to finish on some rapid fire, if you sure. don't mind. Sure. So first, Atlanta still gets into that top 10 where they're at least in a play-in game almost definitely, right? Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, okay. them, Washington, uh, probably Orlando still, and then... I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody. Um, maybe but, Charlotte. And, I don't know if, if you see them getting in it or not. Maybe I would be amazed if it was Charlotte, but uh, it's possible. Most intriguing Eastern Conference rookie. Rookie, uh, Killian Hayes. He was. I had him as third on my board. I think behind Lamelo and Okungwu. I really like Hayes even better than Lamelo, honestly, uh, for as a long term prospect, and he is looks like he's going to be starting it looks like they're going to be giving him the keys right away so i don't think he's going to be ready for it but uh watching him try to grow over the course of the year and see if he can actually run an offense that frankly doesn't really have the right tools in place to even succeed if he is able to succeed in that situation that shows tremendous promise for his future which is the most overlooked team right now in the conference most overlooked i mean uh, Indiana. I haven't heard anyone mention anything about Indiana, and Indiana was really good last year during the regular season, uh, and they they're probably going to be even more reconfigured around Sabonis now that they figured out that TJ Warren at the four can work really well. Assuming TJ Warren can continue to be a twenty point caliber scorer, which I think should be the case. So uh, even though they're going to be without Jeremy Lamb for the year, I think they're still going to be pretty good. They have another year with Malcolm Brogdon under their wing, and they can you know get a better feel for how to utilize him. And then hopefully Oladipo stays healthy. You know that team they've got too much talent, and they have a new coach who is going to really open up their offense and really help. I think change their identity to take advantage of all their offensive pieces. So, the, you know, I think that they're they're still in the mix. There is one of those. I guess you know they're kind of relegated to like the seventh position in the East right now, but. I mean, they showed last year that they're capable of being like a top four seed. Yeah, if we had more time, I was going to ask you about first year head coach Nate Bjorkgren and also Toronto Raptors, who I think are maybe in that six to seven range, possibly in the conference. But um, just the last couple ones, most potentially combustible situation. I mean, Brooklyn, obviously. Um, And then I thought you were going to say Washington, (laughs) but but that's fair. Yeah, you know, Washington too, because if that doesn't work, I mean, Beal at this point has got to give up on that situation. So, yeah, Washington, uh, for sure. Yeah, Wash- I guess Washington is the answer. Brooklyn's a fair answer, though, too. Um, and then, I don't know, would you say a player with the most approved might be Westbrook? Uh, Kyrie Irving. Oh, okay, that's fair. Yeah, Kyrie Irving, uh, He's he's always made it clear he has the most approved to everybody. He's always desperately trying to say that, even though he's already a champion, right? But he wants to prove that he can be a champion on his own. And um, yeah, and, I, and KD's in the same boat, right? I mean, KD kind of felt like the championships almost didn't count because he felt like Steph Curry got all the credit for them. So I think both of those guys are, want to prove that they can win the championship on their own. Yeah, as you know, I'd love to talk to you a lot more, and, and I wanted to ask a lot of Celtics-specific questions too, but I'll let you get back to your day job. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much for doing this. Sure thing.